you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 8. That's page number 6 in the Pew Bible in front of you, the Black Pew Bible, if you'd like to use that today. As you're going there, hear the, the words of the psalmists. Psalm chapter 35, verse 6 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 103, verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving devotion to those who fear him. In Psalm 119, verse 90, Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth, and it endures. Author Wayne Grudem has said this, God's faithfulness means that God will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised. Uh, last week, we began looking at Noah and the flood. In chapters 6 and 7, we saw that God commanded Noah, what God commanded of Noah, and the means of salvation that he provided from the judgment. The means of salvation for those who would believe from the judgment. And that means was, of course, the ark. The flood was divine judgments for a reason. The wickedness of man was great on the earth. And as the floodwaters came and increased, we saw that last week, God was, in a sense, decreating the earth. Author and theologian Sidney Gradonis has diagrammed the literary structure of chapters 6 through 9. Now, if you don't really like literary things, this might not be interesting to you. But listen anyways. <laughs> what we see here is a diagram of these three or four chapters. And what we're seeing is the careful um, articulation of Moses of the flood narrative. Sometimes we read the flood narrative and we think the waters came, uh, the boat went up, the waters came down, the boat came down, and Noah left the ark. But Moses was actually very intentional in how he, he wrote this. And this is what's, what's called a chiastic structure, if you care. And so it, it goes one way, and there's a pivot point, and we're going to see that pivot point today in chapter 8, verse 1, and then it goes back the other way. And there is uh, a mirroring of the way that in which he uh, tells the story, both the first part that we looked at last week, and now the second part, which is the second half of, uh, of this diagram. It's a helpful, the picture here is helpful to communicate uh, that Moses uh, was, was very uh, intentional in what he said and how he said it. And as we come to chapter 8, you heard it read already, we come to the pivot point in the narrative. And the pivot point we'll see in just a minute is verse 1. So the destruction of the flood comes in chapter 6 and 7. And that destruction made way now for a new start, for a recreation, for a new beginning, which we see in verse 1. Look at it again with me. Verse 1, here is the, the centerpiece of the story. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. There's the pivot point. God remembered Noah. 
but God remembered Noah. Now, let, let, let's be clear about what Moses means when he says he remembered. This does not indicate that God had forgotten Noah. Is, is not what, what Moses was suggesting, nor would that be an accurate conclusion from the rest of the Bible, that God somehow had, had missed, missed it for the, for the past several months as Noah was on the ark. And God is all-knowing, and therefore he cannot and does not forget. He cannot and does not forget. So what does this mean then? It means that God thought about Noah. It means that God paid attention to him. It means that God fulfilled his promises, that he acted on Noah's behalf. Theologian Derek Kidner says that this remembering includes faithful love and timely intervention. He remembered him. Faithful love and timely intervention. One more commentator says, God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object. The essence of God's remembering is his acting towards someone because of a previous commitment. So God remembered Noah. God's going to move towards Noah. God's going to act on Noah's behalf. Now, up to this point, Noah and his family had been on the ark for 197 days. That's almost six and a half months. To put that into perspective, understand this, that would have been for us today, if, if we're hearing this as, as Noah in the story, that would have meant the beginning of November we had been on the ark. A lot of things have happened in your life since the beginning of November till up till now. That's the timeline that we're looking at. That, that's a long time, and, and it's not over, right? We know the story's actually not over for Noah. Now, there is no indication, though, in the text that God has spoken to Noah while he was in the ark. So these past six months, since God told him to go into the ark, we have no record of God speaking to Noah. Silence. Even still... Noah was and would continue to patiently wait for God. Now, this is instruction, instructive for us. There's an implicit point here that Noah was waiting. The Bible doesn't say that, but clearly he was waiting. And the, the, the instruction for us is that there have been seasons in your life and in mine, surely, where we feel like, when's this going to end? There doesn't seem like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It doesn't seem like God is present in this flood. What is the next thing? What is the next step? Maybe you've felt forsaken. Maybe you've felt alone. Maybe you've felt like God is not listening to you. Now, Genesis chapter 1 verse 8 is not a verse that we commonly uh, refer to when we're comforting the suffering. But maybe it should be. Genesis chapter 8 verse 1 says that God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. In the midst of, of, of trial and of, 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 of difficulty, what can we know? We can know this, that God remembers his own. Later on in the book of Genesis, we see that God remembers Abraham, and Abraham proceeds to go and save Lot. Later, God remembers, uh, he remembers Rachel 
and she bears a son, Joseph. And we can understand today that, that God remembers you and me as well. Psalm chapter 103, verse 14 says, For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. In the New Testament, we find that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. What is that if not remembering? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What is that if it's not God remembering us? When we read that verse, but God remembered Noah, we can remember that God remembers us. And as God remembered Noah and the animals, he began his work of recreating by withdrawing the waters. Look at it with the rest of verse one. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, that's five months, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Now last week, we said that in the aftermath of the flood, this recreation that, that we would read here in, verse, in chapters 8 and 9 would have some parallels with the original creation narrative in chapters 1 and 2. Most significantly of all, we can notice that God is the author of all creation. He was the author of creation in Genesis 1, and he is the author of the recreation here in Genesis 8 and 9. He is sovereign over all of creation. He is the everlasting God, Isaiah 40 says, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God is sovereign over creation. He has been and he is. God did not set up creation and let it go. There are those who believe such a thing. That God, God's the creator, but he's not interactive in our lives any longer. Genesis chapter 8 verse 1 would say otherwise. That God remembered Noah. That God acted on behalf of Noah as he has for you and for me. Specifically though, in chapter 1 verse 2, we read that the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters as God would form and fill the earth. Now here in chapter 8, we find that God made the wind to blow. The wind and the spirit are the same word in the Hebrew language. He made the wind to blow to evaporate the waters, presumably, as the earth reappeared and was filled once again. Do you see the parallel? This is a new beginning. It's a recreation. It's the restoration of the world post-flood. And after 150 more days, Moses tells us, the water subsided enough for the ark to rest on the mountain range of Ararat, which is in modern-day Turkey. And there it would rest for 54 more days as the land dried out. Look at verses 6 through 12, recounting those days of waiting. And at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him 
Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place for her foot. And she returned to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Now, there can be much made about this passage, and someone to uh, make this into an analogy, the, the, the raven and the dove. We're not going to do that. What, what, we, what we see here is Noah checking for signs of land, quite literally. Right? He's sending out these birds to find out if, if the water has gone down far enough that there's dry land anywhere so that they might leave the ark at the appropriate time. But we also see that he did not and would not depart until God spoke. God still had not spoke to him at this point, and Noah stayed in the ark. God had commanded Noah, and Noah had obeyed. He built the ark, and he was still captive to the will of God. That's what we're seeing with Noah. We're still seeing his faithfulness, even after more than a year, 377 days total in that ark, he's still trusting the Lord. This is faith, faith in God, faith in his will for his, uh, God's will for his life. Uh, some of us have been guilty of moving on from, from the plan when things seem to be going badly, when God seems to be distant. We might struggle to be faithful. But what we find here with Noah is a man of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 tells us just that. Warren Wearsby writes, obedient faith, and that's what we see in Noah, is our response to God's word. Obedient faith is our response to God's word. You want to live by faith? You want to know what living by faith looks like when we say that? It's obedience to God's word. It's doing what God has said. It's responding to what God has said and doing that. Sometimes we spiritualize it so much that we don't even know what we mean when we say we're living by faith. What do we mean? We mean walking with God. We mean obeying God's word. Well, finally, the time had come for Noah and his family and the animals to leave the ark. Look at it in verse 13. In the 600th year and first year, uh, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your daughter and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is, uh, that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and creeping things that creep on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Noah had waited. Noah had been patient. And finally, when God spoke, Noah obeyed. God told him, go out, bring with you every living thing, 
in order, why? That the earth would be populated again, which was already beginning. Look at the end of verse 19. It says, they went out by families from the ark. They came in two by two. They left with families. What does that tell you? They, they, had, they, they were already procreating in the ark. They went out as families. Noah did what God said. Verse 19 tells us just that. In response to God, and in response to God's faithfulness, Noah built an altar in verse 20. Look at it. And when Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of the clean animals and some of every clean bird offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah's offering here is, is an act of worship. He's come off the, 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 the ark. He has endured this, this flood. He has been brought to, to, to safety. And now what does he do? He worships. He worships God. And he gives God what he and only he deserves. And that is worship. And what does God do? Look at verse 21. And when God smelled the pleasing aroma. Now quickly, God does not have a nose. This is an anthropomorphism to, to give us some idea of God accepting in God's uh, um, uh, receiving of this worship. Smelling the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart. So this was not out loud. This was in his heart. This was something that God said. I'm going, I'm never again cursed. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of the man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And the offering we find was pleasing to God. It was acceptable to God. As Abel's offering was acceptable to God, now here Noah's offering is acceptable to God. The godly line continues. The line of the the seed continues from chapter 3, verse 15. Noah has been preserved, and he offers up a sacrifice, and it's acceptable to God. It's not acceptable just because it's, 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 uh, it's a clean animal. It's acceptable because of Noah's heart. David even wrote, For you do not delight in a sacrifice, or I would bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Why was Noah's offering accepted? Why was Abel's offering accepted? It wasn't because of what they brought. It was because of their hearts. It's not not the things that we do. It's not the things that we bring to God. It's not our good works to God that make us acceptable to God. It's our hearts. It's being made right with God. It's the motivation of why we do what we do. So in response to Noah's offering, God makes three promises here. And the first is, I will never again curse the ground because of man. God promises, this promise did not remove the previous curses. Chapter 3, verse 17, and chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It just didn't, it didn't add on any more curse. This is the promise. We understand that the flood um, in this promise to never curse the ground again, we understand that the flood did not change man's sinfulness, right? What does the second part say? For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's still true. Post-flood, it's still true. It's still true that man's heart is wicked. We're gonna see that again next week in Noah himself. Noah was not the promised seed, but one through whom the promised seed would come. The hope was not in Noah, but God makes a promise. 
I'll never curse the ground again. Second promise, verse 21. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I, as I have done. God had received Noah's offering and promised not to destroy every creature as he had. That means by the flood, by a flood. Noah's offering, Kent Hughes writes, Noah's offering propitiated or satisfied God's righteous wrath. Now this is important. Think about this. Noah gets off the ark and what does he do? He makes a sacrifice. He makes an offering. He worships God. And in response, God says, I I have accepted that offering I'll never do that again. That's atonement. That's atonement. Here, Noah's offering and the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament is pointing us to an ultimate sacrifice, an ultimate atonement, an ultimate sacrifice in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, we're we're already seeing how how Jesus is the ultimate atonement. These merely point us that way. The third promise is in verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, I don't want to get into a global climate change argument here uh, this morning. But what we can understand is, is simply this. As long as the earth endures, the changing seasons will continue. That's what that's what God has said. And you can, you can argue about what, what those changing seasons are looking like these days or, or whatever you want to do. But the scriptures say this, God made a promise and the promise is the rhythms of day and night of seasons will continue as long as the earth endures. The earth will not endure forever. So this promise isn't forever, but as long as the earth endures. Well, God then spoke to Noah and gave a blessing. And he gives a blessing with instructions to, to reaffirm and establish his values. Look at it in chapter nine, verse one. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, verse one, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Look down to verse seven. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. This is a, a reiteration of his commandment back in chapter one. Chapter one, after God created everything, he says to Adam and Eve, he says to the the animals to be fruitful and to multiply. Chapter one, verse 28, be fruitful and have uh, and multiply. Have babies, procreate, expand the population, populate the earth. That's the command. That's still the command. (laughs) Children are a blessing from God. Just last week, we had the opportunity to to dedicate three children up here. And I don't know about you, but your heart should be made very glad, and mine is, when we see babies. We see babies in the church. We have a culture that looks very differently upon having children today than, than it once did, and very differently than what God says. Listen to Psalm chapter 127, verse three through five. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Having children was seen and understood to be God's favor. We need a a reclamation in our society a new vision of having children. Not everyone can have children. 
and we understand that. But we have a society that is purposefully, purposefully and intentionally not having children, purposefully and intentionally not fulfilling the command given to humanity, both in chapter one and now here in chapter nine. Be fruitful and multiply. Well, for multiplying, God then speaks about sustaining. Multiplying life, now sustaining life. Look at verses two through four. The fear of you, that is man, and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heaven and everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. What once was harmony in the garden, where man and animals lived together, has now been broken. There is, there is not harmony between man and animal any longer. Dominion here is being reestablished to some degree, but not in harmony with animals. From a, from a plant diet in the garden, now animals are for food. If you're a vegetarian, you can be a vegetarian. That's fine. You're allowed to be a vegetarian. But upon the authority of the, the scriptures, all animals, all animals are to be food for mankind. Chapter 4 says, And you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Life is in the blood. That's what Moses is saying here. So we don't eat the blood. Though man is over animal life, animal life is still life and is still to be respected. And so there is a restriction in verse 4 as it relates to animals for diets. Well, then God moves from animals to mankind and to protecting life in verses five and six. And your lifeblood, the man's lifeblood, will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. For his fellow man, I will reckon, I require a reckoning for the life of a man. <clears throat> Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, if you're tracking here, what we're talking about is capital punishments. We're talking about a life for a life. We're talking about a death penalty for murdering. Now, this seems to be coming and has been for maybe some time, a more controversial topic in our modern age. In our modern age of believing that we know better we know more than the people who came before us. We're more evolved. We're more just. We're more equitable, so we think. But the word of God ought not to be so quickly dismissed. The sanctity of human life is bound up in the, in, in the, uh, the, in the point of, uh, in the reality of the image of God being stamped on every person, which means we have inherent value and worth at whatever stage that is. And because mankind is made in the image of God, therefore a reckoning is to be given for someone who takes the life of an image bearer of God. So murder, that is taking, taking of a human life, the destruction of an image bearer of God is to be punished by death. Now this is not a, a mandate that we uh, that we in, invoke ourselves. It's not a mandate that we execute personally. God has established means for that. He has established societies and governments and civil magistrates to carry out this responsibility, and they ought to. Now, some people want to argue about capital punishment. 
And they might think that that seems inhumane. It's inhumane. You, that person killed a person. Now we're going to kill another person to justify uh, or somehow give a reckoning for that. What kind of message is that sending? And the response can be this. What is the message that we're sending if we don't? What is the message that we're sending if there isn't a reckoning? The point is that it's an image bearer of God. That's the point. If we lose the image bearer of God, yeah, why does it matter? Who really does care? You can make justice whatever you want to make it. We can all just come up with our own, our own terms of how to, how to navigate all this. But if we are stamped with the image of God, if we're made in the likeness of God, then we have inherent value. And the destruction of a human life is a destruction of the image bearer of God. That's an assault on God. And there is a consequence. There is a reckoning. And here in the Noahic, in, in the, the flood narrative, we find God's promise and God's words of how man is to reckon for a life taken. The message here at the dawn of recreation is the value of life rooted in the imago dei, that is the image of God. We cannot get away from this. We cannot get away from the, the divine creation reality. No matter how far our culture wants to secularize, we cannot get away from it. Well, following this, this blessing, God enacted a new bond or a new covenant. Look at it in verse 8. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every beast that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast on the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast on the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and this is the covenant, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now there's covenants all throughout the Bible. And just in the book of Genesis, there are said to be nine different covenants. And the first of which is this one. It's called the Noahic Covenant. A covenant can be defined as a promise or an agreement between two parties to perform certain actions. Or another source says that a covenant is an oath bound relationship between two parties, which in this case of the Noahic covenant, God binds himself to his own oath to keep his promises. The Noahic covenant, we just read it in verse 11. But here, as God explains it, we see four things about this covenant. First is that there's a uni it's universal in its scope. He says that it's for Noah, his offspring, and all the creatures. The point is, the Noahic covenant is for everybody. It's not just for Noah. It's for everybody. All of creation. Secondly, it is unilateral in its enactment, which means that God is the one who determines the covenant. When you get married, one party cannot determine the covenant. It doesn't work that way. You got to have the other person agree to the covenant, right? You got to have two. But in this covenant, God is the sole initiator. He's the only one that matters. He's the one who initiates it. He's sovereign over it. It's unilateral. It's also unconditional in its generosity, which means it doesn't require anything from the other party. That God is making an oath. He's making a covenant. He's making an agreement. He's making a promise. And it actually doesn't matter if you hold up your end. 
if there is an end. It doesn't matter if you agree with him or not, he's still not doing it. He's still not going to flood the earth again. He's still not going to destroy all flesh by a flood. Now, not all covenants are like that. Not all covenants are unconditional. Some covenants are conditional. It means if you hold up your end of the bargain, I'll hold up mine. And there are other covenants in, in the Bible that are that way. This one is not. This one is universal or it's unconditional. And, and fourthly, and kind of going along with all of this, it's, in, it's unbroken in its permanence. Into verse 16, we see that it's an everlasting covenant. This is the covenant. God will never destroy the earth again with a flood. Now there's destruction coming. It's just not going to be by the flood. So the covenant here is that he's not going to do it by the flood. Well, from the statement of of the covenant, God then provides a sign of the covenant. Look at verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. This is the sign. Verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature in all flesh, of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember, all, remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. What's the sign? Sign is a rainbow. Or here called in verse 13, my bow. Now, we want to say that this does not indicate that this is the first time there was a rainbow. It doesn't mean that rainbows were introduced at this point. They were not necessarily new, but they were given a new meaning. They were given a new reality. This, in this sense, it was a sign of the covenant between God and the earth. The rainbow was a reminder to who? To God. Of his covenant with creation to never again destroy all flesh with a flood. When God looks at the rainbow, he remembers the covenants. We started in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1. Go back there. Chapter 8, verse 1. And what does it say? And God remembered Noah. We get to verse 13 of chapter 9. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Look to verse 16. And the bow, when the bow is in the cloud, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. As God remembered Noah, God remembers us. As God remembered Noah, God remembers us. As God remembered Noah there, the the rainbow stands as a reminder that God has not forgotten his people. God has not forgotten his promises. He is faithful to do what he has promised. Again, Wayne Grudem, God's faithfulness means that God will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised. Now let's be clear, not everything that you and I think is a promise is a promise. Not everything we want God to fulfill has God promised to fulfill. So let's make sure we know what is a promise and what is, what is our wants. 
But God has promised to save us. God has promised to, to send his son to return, to take us to be with himself. God has promised not to stop every flood, but to be with us in every flood. God's faithfulness means that God will always do what he said and fulfill what he has promised. God's bow, verse 13, may speak of, a, of an archer's bow. It doesn't look like an archer's bow to us. Not the colors anyways, but the bow. You might be able to make that out. And the bow is, is said to be a, 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 in the sky, a symbol of God's war bow being hung up as a sign of peace. One commentator notes this though, that God has turned the bow towards heaven and taken the punishment for us on himself. It was the acceptable sacrifice of God's own son on the cross that satisfied God's wrath against sin and abates the punishments to those who would believe. You see it? Christ is the greater Noah, who saves his people from the waters of death, Kent Hughes says, by his faithful obedience in atoning sacrifice. The flood narrative points us to the sinfulness of man, to God's love for the world, his commitment to his creation, his redemptive work for you and me, and his faithfulness day by day. For God so loved the world. Would you pray with me? God, we are thankful today that you have so loved the world. And here in the, the flood narrative, we see how you remembered Noah. You remember your people. You don't forget them. And you don't forget us. As you provided a, a means of salvation through the ark, you've provided for us a means of salvation today through Christ. And as you are faithful to your promises in the Noahic covenant and continue to be faithful to your promises, we can know today that you're still faithful to your promises. You're faithful to your promises that anyone who repents and believe will be forgiven. You're faithful to your promise that whosoever would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. You're faithful to your promise to rescue those who cry out for help. You're faithful to your promise to never leave us nor forsake us. All that you have promised, you are faithful to. You're faithful to your promise that you would send the offspring of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And we thank, we thank you for Jesus who came to do just that, that we may have salvation, that we may have rescue, that we may have hope, not only in this life, but in the next. Thank you for your faithfulness. And we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Oh God.